who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello, and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast the fan podcast looking at the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today, we're discussing Dolph's most recent film, Section 8, which is currently available on Video On Demand and AMC+. In this film, Australian actor Ryan Quantin takes the lead as Jake Atherton, a former soldier who was sprung from prison and recruited by a shadowy government agency known as Section 8 to assist in off-the-book assassinations. Yet when it's apparent that Atherton has been duped and is actually working for the bad guys, he teams up with his mentor and former army buddy, played by Dolph Lundgren, to take on Section 8 and see that justice is finally served. How you doing, Jake? I'm really sorry for what they did to your family. The two people I love most are gone. But I got my revenge. And I have zero remorse. Special forces, honorably discharged. You don't belong in here. And who are you? I'm the best thing that's ever happened to you. What is this place? Welcome to Section 8. We've been sanctioned to eliminate any threats anywhere in the world. So why am I here? Look, you're a great soldier. One of the best I've ever known. Most of the agents we recruit are men and women like you who have a special set of skills. So we're assassins. We're whatever we're ordered to be. They resist. We resist back. You ever hear of them? Cesspool of operatives. Disgraced CIA, FBI. I know these guys. It's part of their culture in a way. We're assassinating a state senator. Black bag job. Have a family. The hell are you doing? You agitated. <laughs> there are innocent people. He doesn't belong here. I say we take him out. You got some serious problems, soldier. I need money and a gun. You're gonna need more than that. You I think you better get your ass out of here. I'll find him and I'll finish the job. I want to watch you die. I'm your host, Sean, and returning to the show to help me chat this one is major fan of action cinema, Vern, from his website, outlawvern.com. He is also the author of the books, Sigology, Nike Town, and Worm on a Hook. Vern, thank you so much for coming back, man. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be back. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. I should probably let you know why uh, I sought you out. Uh, I, I had such a good time chatting uh, Female Fight Squad with you a number of months back. And so I knew I, I, know, I, know I said that uh, I, I'd have you back on, and I imagine you were probably thinking it was going to be a few months down the line. But um, the reason I sought you out for this one and invited you back on for this one mainly is because it's a more current effort. I mean, it hits streaming on September 23rd, and it has a killer cast. I mean, Ryan Quantin, um, but also Dolph Lundgren, Dermot Mulroney, Mickey Wark, Scott Atkins. So I kind of figured you were most likely going to be watching this anyway for your website, right? So I just kind of thought, okay, you know what? Let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's do it. Yeah, that is true. And I (laughs) tend to specialize in, I I guess I specialize in the one where Dolph has a really small part that he comes in and talks on a phone or something. Yeah, it, I was going to get to that. It's it's interesting. It's yeah, both this film and Female Fight Squad. You could take Dolph's role out of the film completely, and it's still narratively, it's still going to get to the finish line and tell a complete story. His role in either of these films really isn't necessary, is it? Well, there's a little bit of a twist with him at the end of this one, but well, there is, but, but then that twist you, completely yeah, you gets. Can write it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious. Um, l- l- let's go back a bit because I don't know about you, but um, I first heard the genesis of this project when it was underway about a year ago or so. Um, were you were you sent a screener from RLJ Films as well to watch this one? Yeah, and I thought it was going to be real cool and set you up with one, and then it turned out that you already had one, so I wasn't as cool as I thought. <laughs> I was, but... Uh, but yeah, I got I got to see it a little bit. Earlier. Well, so I mean, this is ah, boy, this is an interesting one because this film it's it's Dolph's most recent film. Um, this film is another in one of the very many films that kind of follow the current mo that we're seeing these days. Okay, especially within the, within these independent action films where you cast a couple uh, aging name actors for your film, pay them for a few days that they're on set. And then you kind of sprinkle their scenes throughout the film. But then you cast someone younger to do the heavy lifting and be the main star. Okay, this is the system that's been at the forefront of all of those Bruce Willis films of the last 10 years. So here it's really not much different. Okay, the big name stars, Dolph Lundgren, Mickey Rourke, Dermot Mulroney, and Scott Atkins, they all take a backseat to the star who is Ryan Quantin. I'm, I'm curious, uh, regarding Ryan Quantin, okay, he's an Australian actor. I've, I've never seen the television show uh, True Blood. I, I know he comes from True Blood, so I guess he has some fan base there. However, I did see a, a film that he did about 10, 12, 13 years ago or so called Red Hill. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one or not, but that one is a yeah, super cool modern Western. Exactly, it's, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I know him from also. Yeah, directed by Patrick Hughes. Patrick Hughes, who mm-hmm. directed um, Expendables Three. Obviously, I'm curious. What are your thoughts on uh, on a guy like Ryan Quantin taking the lead to uh, guys like Dolph and Mickey Rourke and Scott Atkins all taking a backseat? Well, it's it's interesting. I think um, first of all, this is a very solid uh, version of this type of movie. And as far as like what you're talking about with the with them all having small parts, all the action stars have small parts, but it's handled really well. Like a lot of times you see ones where they clearly just shot them for a day separately and 
there's a bunch of green screen and stuff like that. And this is not like that at all. It has, it has, you know, it's, you can tell it's a low budget movie, but it has pretty good production value and that they, uh, they handle these smaller parts well. And I think we'll probably, probably everyone who sees it will agree that one particular one of the actors is the best part of the movie. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get to that, but I think, uh, as I sort of like examine it more as, as we're, as I'm getting ready to, as I was getting ready to talk about it with you, I, I realize, I feel like there's a little bit of a mismatch in between him and these other actors. And it certainly doesn't ruin the movie. Like I enjoyed the movie a lot, but it's, it's kind of weird because he's giving a really good actor performance and it's not an action star performance, um, which I'm sure is intentional. And they, it's kind of like, he's a guy that's, um, suffered this tragedy and he does a lot of sad showers and crying at holding photos and stuff like that. Um, and in the fight scenes, he's always like kind of trying to get out of the fight and kind of getting pushed until he, until he has to fight. Um, and it's a very good performance, but then these other, these other characters around him, Scott Adkins, Dolph Lundgren, Mickey Rourke are, uh, they're so, um, they're more larger than life kind of action star kind of characters. And then um, the way, the way that they approach it with Ryan Quantin's character, it seems like you're not supposed to think violence is cool. You're supposed to see the tragedy of it. And so, um, so it's kind of weird because it's not, uh, it's not a, 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 there's nothing about the the approach to this story that's original at all, which is okay with me, but it it makes it kind of weird that it's kind of treating that aspect of it seriously because it's like this is not going to be the movie that moves us to understand uh, the tragedy of 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 being this guy that 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 went to war and knows how to fight and stuff. <laughs> I don't know, does that make any sense? No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, with, with regard to Ryan Quantin, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm not the, the world's biggest es- expert. Um, I think Red Hill is amazing. So anyone who is listening to this who has not seen Red Hill, yeah, that's an Australian Western that came out in, I think, 2010. Um, I saw another movie that he did now that I'm thinking about it, oddly enough, also with Mickey Rourke called uh, Blunt Force Trauma. I don't know if you saw that one either. Um, yeah. And he, I mean, he, you know, he's, what's interesting is he's, he's a serviceable enough actor. And I, I've, I'm sure you've discovered it as well with all of these independent action films, but it seems like the lead of these films, and I hate using the Bruce Willis films as kind of the, as kind of a model for this, but I think, feel like those films are a perfect example of what we're seeing. Okay. We have the, um, the aging action star who is kind of being sold as being the lead, if you will, when in reality, mm-hmm. he's more of a cameo. I mean, I would say a supporting character, but Let's be honest, it's kind of a cameo. And so what's interesting about Ryan Quantin is I feel like he's kind of fit in the mold of all of these guys. And by that, I mean, it's it's pretty much, okay, if you look at any of those Bruce Willis movies, okay, it's pretty much you need a young, okay, fit actor who is pretty good looking, who um, is uh, kind of a wannabe action star. I mean, I don't know if you felt this way or not, but if you swapped out Ryan Quantin for, say, Kellen Lutz or Chad Michael Murray or Mark Paul Gossler or any of those actors that's popped up in those Bruce Willis movies, I think the movie is going to play about the same. So, 
I don't, I don't know if I agree with that because I think he, I mean, I'm, I don't want to specifically compare him to those guys, but he, he has more screen presence than some of the guys that you would see in these types of movies. But then at the same time, he, like when they first, what, he's got the war flashback and then when they first cut to him back home, he's he's got, um, I forget if he had his shirt off or if he just had short sleeves or something, but he's like skinny and he looks kind of, he looks very, he's looking in the mirror and taking pills and stuff. And they, he looks almost sickly, in a, like as part of the character. And then they, they never really build him up as being a badass, other than that he ends up winning all these fights that he accidentally gets in. But yeah, but they don't like play him up. Like I, I feel like they're trying to be a little more realistic and a little more um, dramatic with with treating this ex-military character. But I've, but it, it's kind of. That's what I mean by the by the mismatch is it's kind of an odd fit with the uh, <clears throat> how much everything is just basic action movie tropes other than that performance. Well, that, that's an uh, that's an excellent segue because I mean if we look at action movie tropes, okay, the screenwriter and the director of this film are very experienced in uh, in the worlds of uh, uh, independent action films. Okay, I, I hate using the term generic, but I feel like. That's what this film is kind of to an extent, okay? Um, this was written by friend of the show, Chad Law. Chad Law, I had the pleasure of speaking with him uh, for an episode of the show a number of years back. Um, he's quite experienced in writing these independent action films. And this was directed by Christian Sesma, okay? Unfortunately, I was going to kind of go to your expertise for this one here in a minute. But unfortunately, I have not seen any of uh, Sesma's films, okay? But man, I mean, if you just look at his his credits on IMDb, this guy is busy, okay? He has directed over 20 films since 2007. They're all independent action films. And judging by this film in particular, I think it's understandable why he is hired for these films. I think when it comes to these independent action films, that go direct to video or straight to streaming, if you will. I think the, the producers and their, um, their orders, if you will, are pretty clear. Okay. Is deliver a competent product. Okay. In a certain window of time and, you know, collect your paycheck, if you will. But with this film, okay. I, I will say, okay. And I know he's done quite a few films. Like I said, I know he did one with uh, Michael Jai White called Take Back. He did another one called Night Crew with, uh, Luke Goss and Danny Trejo. But if we're going to look at this film as kind of his, uh, you know, to kind of judge his his uh, skill set on, I think we can say, I think it's evident that he's able to turn in a competent product in a relatively quick turnaround. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. The the only one that I have seen actually is is Take Back, uh, which I enjoyed, and it's a. Um, even though they advertise it as a Michael Jai White movie, it's really his wife. Uh, I'm not sure if it's Gillian or Jillian. I think it's Gillian White it's with a G. It's with a G. Um, she's really the star of it, and that's kind of what's cool about it is that it's a it's a real gender swap where he he gets to fight in it, but he's mainly like the supportive husband, and she's the badass in it. Um, which and and it has a lot of little details that it kind of. You know, it follows the basic formula of the the action hero with this with the sinister secret past that comes out comes to haunt them, and then they have to fight people. But it's her that has the past, and not him. 
and um, it's it's pretty clever. And it also it has Mickey Rourke in it. Um, and it was a it was a pandemic film, and it's interesting to compare because it was a fun movie, but this one definitely has a lot better production value. I don't know. I assume it probably was a bigger budget, but it also just feels a lot bigger and more more scope to it. And um, I, I enjoyed seeing Mickey Rourke in both of these, but in that one, it's, it was very clear that there was a lot of kind of like shooting footage of him completely by himself and then pretending yeah. he's in the room, you know? <laughs> and I, it, which I did not feel with, uh, with section eight, I felt like he was a lot more organically in, included into it. Well, I mean, I, I think it's no big secret. I mean, I've talked about it on the show numerous times and I'm sure you've, you've seen it as well. Okay. The shooting days, on these particular films are very, very limited. I mean, these movies are shot within a matter of weeks, okay, especially with these types of films. So I think to have a film delivered that has requisite action sequences, but also some semblance of style is a real breath of fresh air, okay? And looking at a film like Section 8, which we're going to be talking about many of the action sequences, I think it's pretty evident that, yeah, Christian Sesma, maybe he is a gun for hire for these films, but I think from what we've, what, you know, the 90 minutes that this film is, if you look at it, he certainly does that. I mean, I think the action sequences look much bigger than uh, some of the other previous films that, that I've discussed on the show. In fact, this film was filmed just last year. Okay. And if you look at his credits on IMDb, he currently has another four movies that are in various <laughs> stages of uh, post-production. So this guy is working. <laughs> yeah yeah it's um it's impressive i mean there's obviously a lot of directors that are that you'll come across that are real like ridiculously prolific like that but um but yeah you're right judging by this you know if they're all as solid as this one then that's really impressive well like we said um Ryan Quantin is the uh, the lead. He plays the character Jake Atherton. He's a former soldier who spent some time in Iraq, um, thus giving us just enough background information to establish that he is a badass. Okay, that's all we need. And um, this also allows us to get introduced to his mentor and army buddy, uh, Tom Mason, who's played by Dolph Lundgren. And, you know, it's really interesting while it is nice to see the legend that is Dolph on screen, I don't know if you felt this way or not, but there's just simply not enough time, okay, spent to appreciate his presence because mainly in these uh, in these few flashback army scenes, he's just sitting, okay. That, that's what's interesting to me. He's yeah. sitting in these scenes. When we're introduced to the Mason character, he's sitting in the army, uh, the, the army Humvee. And then in the second scene, he's laying on the ground wounded with a gunshot to the leg. Okay. And so again, to anyone who is disappointed and feeling duped. Okay. That, uh, that, that their action star, Dolph Lundgren. Okay. Who's in this film. Um, I think anyone who's coming into this and feels a little duped or feels a little sad. I think by this point, look, the cat is out of the bag by now. Okay, and I think even the general public, we all know about the bait and switch with these action films. So the fact that uh, that the, the the legend is on screen, but when he is, he's he's either laying down wounded or he's sitting, is not a big surprise. It's true, but it is a little. He, I, I, I don't want to like make assumptions, but it seemed like he might have had a cold or been sick or something at the time too, because he he seems kind of not not as. Uh, 
with it as he normally does. And he, um, no, no fault of his, the, it, it was kind of unclear to me what had happened in those scenes also, like what, I, I, it's kind of unclear, number one, why Ryan Quantin is the best soldier he's ever seen. And number two, why, how he's saved his life. I guess he shot here. He warned him about the one guy that was coming up at one point, but I don't know. It was to me, I think these, um, these war on terror scenes that we've seen so many of them and they never seem like authentic at all. And they never, they're just, you know, they establish something that we kind of get anyway. And so I almost wish that they would just skip over, you know, I don't want to say don't have golf in the movie, but I almost wish they would just skip over the, the Afghanistan part and, and just mention that that's where, you know, that that's where they knew each other because, you know, use that money for something that's going to be more exciting than another generic Afghan, fake Afghanistan scene. Also was in Iraq, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It had the incorrect uh, information on the screen there. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, it's funny because I felt the exact same way that you did. I mean, I think in the end, that's my big issue with this film, okay, is look, okay, look, I, I get it. I understand, okay? You have a guy like, you know, these – and we're going to be getting to Mickey Rourke here in a minute because I have a few things to say about his character. But I think, again, the cat's out of the bag, okay? We, we know we know going in what the what the status of these productions is like. Okay, fine. But I think at this point – I don't know if you feel this way or not – but at this point, look, I'm no longer surprised at the bait and switch of it all, okay? But this is where I feel that a director like John Hyams gets it right, okay? If you look at his films, um, Dragon Eyes or um, Universal Soldier Regeneration, Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, okay? These are all films, okay, that he did. And what's really fascinating about him is I feel like when he went into those films, he knew very clearly, look, I have an aging action star on set. Okay, even if you look at uh, Regeneration Day of Reckoning, he had two, okay? And I think he's understanding, okay, look, these guys are aging. I only have them for a, a certain number of days. Um, he's also aware of the fact, okay, these are names who helped unlock the financing to kind of get these uh, get these movies made. Fine. But what I feel like a, a guy like John Hyams does, even Jesse Johnson to an extent, is he says, okay, look, I understand all that, but you know what? I'm going to put them to work. And I'm going to put them to use in some memorable ways. And I'm going to give them action sequences. And so if you look at those films that John Hyams did, he gives them at least one to two scenes where they really shine. He has one to two scenes that really, really have teeth. Okay. Here in this particular film, neither Dolph Lundgren or Mickey Rourke get these. Okay. We're going to get into Scott Atkins here in a minute. He gets to work, but... But Dolph and Mickey Rourke don't get this. I mean, their roles in this film, I'm just going to say it. I know I kind of said it earlier, but their roles in this movie are so tangential. Okay. I mean, granted, they're mentor roles, but they're not entirely necessary to the rest of the movie. You could take the roles of Dolph, okay, and Mickey Rourke out of this film completely. And I feel like the movie is going to work just fine narratively. So. Uh, I partly agree with you. Um, obviously, I agree that John John Hyams and Jesse V. Johnson are both great, and they're and part of what makes them great is is their genius at being able to uh, maneuver those those short schedules and 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 uh, uh, regeneration is one of my 
one of the all-time classics, I think. And and I think of Dolph's part in that as being the very best example of of taking advantage of a of a short window to use the actor because, like, you know, I'm not sure it would have been as good if he had not been doing Expendables and had had a larger part in it. Like his his role in that movie is so powerful and and um, the way they handled it and and so um, obviously I. I agree that he doesn't have nearly that in this movie. Um, uh, But I think uh, where I do disagree with you is that I, I really, and I think I'm going to be alone on this, but I I really did like Mickey Rourke in this part um, because I, I like that it just kind of takes advantage of him being a weirdo and his specific, way of acting that he likes to use at this time um you know it's obviously not as as great as seeing him in in you know the wrestler and and these things where he really got a great role but um as far as as far as being like a paycheck actor in in dtv movies i think it's uh like number one both in this and i think maybe in take back also he he cries (laughs) <laughs> I think he has more. Does he have more than one cry in this? I forget. But he—that's so weird. Yeah, I was going to get to that. He gets so emotional in this movie, and you wonder, like, like Mickey, did, did you think you were in a different level of production of a movie? Like, I mean, what what movie did you think you showed up for here? I mean, because he is just bawling in his final scene. <laughs> but see, I like that because I I I feel like um, I I admire that he really seems to like in this in this at least in that aspect he's putting his heart into this role like in in some sense it's very lazy because it's like he's clearly just Mickey Rourke with his tattoos and just doing his thing um and you're right it's like a totally like a role that doesn't need to be in there um but at the same time it's like everything else about the plot is so intentionally just using tropes that we've seen a thousand times um, so the way that you make a story like that fun is by having weird personality to it. And to me, his, his little part is like part of the personality of it, that, that there's, that our hero has this uncle that he loves who is kind of a weird sleazy guy, but also <laughs> like loves his neighborhood and is very emotional about it. And, uh, and, and also loves his nephew. And, and then he's got the little shrine to his, to his dead, brother apparently and <laughs> it's just the same way that i always like that mickey Rourke puts his dogs and birds and stuff in a lot of his movies and it's like i feel like he's putting some of his emotion into this this kind of paycheck role so uh i don't know i i i'm very aware that a lot of people would just find it laughable and and not agree with me on that but i enjoy it no i mean look i i, I guess i'll partly agree with you i mean he he really does add some real acting talent and, and gravitas to this film. Okay. I mean, you already said it. Um, so Ryan Quantin's character, Jake, he works for his uncle, uh, Earl, who is actually his other mentor. Uh, so yeah, J- Jake gets two mentors in this movie. <laughs> I don't know how necessary it is for him to have one mentor, let alone two, but okay. Um, but yeah, th- this character is, uh, is Earl. He's played by Mickey Rourke, who runs the auto repair shop where uh, Jake works, okay? Mickey Rourke actually gets less scenes than Dolph in this movie. I'm betting that uh, that Mickey Rourke filmed 
all of his scenes over the course of a single day. And I think this is notable because he wears pretty much the same attire for the entire film, which is pretty funny. But, you know, I want to get your take on Mickey Work. What's really interesting about Mickey Work, and look, I'm not even going to comment on the bizarre paths that his face has taken over the last 12 years. That's not my place. But I remember, it's really, really interesting about his career. I remember when he has come back in 2008 with The Wrestler, he was interviewed in uh, Entertainment Weekly. And I remember reading this article. And with his comeback in this big, prestigious movie that was The Wrestler, um, Mickey reflected on his films that he did throughout the late 90s. And he did not speak favorably of them at all. Um, I distinctly remember even in this article, he referred to them as pieces of shit. And so it's, it's really odd and slightly ironic how after getting an Oscar uh, nomination and a comeback, he's now back with not only a new face, but he's also back to starring in the same types of films that are on the same level of the movies he was doing 20 plus years ago. Have you noticed that at all? Well, well, yeah, it is. I, I don't know that anyone is trying to hire him for anything on a higher level of of movie quality, you know. And but but yeah, I, I forget exactly what movies he was throwing under the bus there, but he did a lot of good stuff around then. He did a lot of stuff with Robert Rodriguez and yeah, and double team. Double Team is a classic. <laughs> I love Double Team. He did He did another one that is, it's actually pretty terrible, but in a very laughable way called uh, Point Blank. Did you ever see that one oh, with yeah. uh, Danny Trejo yeah. and, and Kevin Gay? The mall. <laughs> then the mall. There's oh, a man. called Point Blank, and that's not one of the better ones. No. Well, I mean, and I think, I think this is where you and I may disagree slightly, and that's okay. But in a really, really weird way, Vern, I felt the presence of Dolph Lundgren and Mickey Rourke in this movie, they almost kind of weigh the film down. Now, notice how I'm not referring to Dermot Mulroney or Scott Atkins. We're going to get to them in a minute. But for me, and I hate saying this, okay, on the Dolph Lundgren podcast, but in a very weird way, I almost wonder if, if, if these roles should have been cut from the film. Okay. Then again, however, I'm also a realist here. Then again, let's face it. If they were cut, then uh, I don't think this movie really would have been made. Okay. So it's almost a catch 22, but when they're on screen, they have that presence. I mean, let me go back a bit, but I feel like when you cast actors like Dolph and like Mickey Rourke, yeah, when they're on screen, they suck the air out of the room. They are there. I mean, they are presences on screen. Okay. But here, they're just kind of there. And like we said earlier, most of Dolph's scenes are of him sitting. So it's, it's kind of interesting. They almost are kind of a bit of a drag when, uh, when they, when they come in. It's, it's interesting because I, I kind of pulled up this analogy that I thought was kind of funny, but I mean, it's almost, it feels like the equivalent. Okay, Vern, you and I put together a local theater production. Okay. But then one of the producers, Okay, he throws up a bunch of money to um, help get it made. Also requires that his nephews get roles. Okay, so what you and I have to do is we suddenly squeeze in these completely nothing roles of a street vendor who spouts wisdom and then a neighbor who makes small talk with the lead. That's basically the equivalent of what what Dolph and Mickey are doing in this film. 
Okay, but if the nephews were as fun as Mickey Rourke, then I would be okay with it. Okay, <laughs> but they gotta have some. They gotta have a lot of weird, weird like uh, things that they do with tooth. They take out a toothpick and they start doing a thing with their shirt while they're talking. You know, they do they have a, lot of business, <laughs> a lot of actor business that they do. I'll I'll just say it. Mickey's opening scene in this film, where that gal comes walking into the into the auto shop and how the camera just kind of um, <laughs> almost kind of awkwardly leers at her. Okay. And she comes in and how, and you think that maybe she's going to get a bigger role in this movie than she does. But did you notice that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Doesn't, doesn't lead to much. He tries to give her a free car though. He does give her a free car. I think that's, um, that, that's the old, uh, Chekhov's gun uh, technique, I guess, to just kind of <laughs> let us know that that Mickey is a good guy, right? <laughs> well, there's kind of a, the whole beginning of the movie. It's kind of I don't know if it was intended as a fake out, but it really feels like like it could turn into like a Death Wish type movie, where like you know uh, it was nice to see Robert Lasardo, who's al- he's always a good uh, character actor playing. He's playing the leader of the gang guys. His name is Fresh, I believe. Um, yes. When they come in and they come in and he has a little skirmish with them and he and and fresh uh, threatens him. And then a lo- in a lot of movies, then there it would there would be a long build up towards where something would become of that and fresh would would do something. But in this movie, like immediately the guy goes and kills Ryan Quantin's family. And then and so then it could be. Now Ryan Quanton's going to try to get justice, but he can't. So then he has to take it into his own hands. He has to track him down. But they skip over all that, and he just drives right to where the guy is and just murders him and all his all his men in a bar. And then it cuts to him in prison. So that was kind of a cool, like, you know, if you didn't see the trailer, you kind of think it's going to be a certain type of movie, and then it goes into a totally different subgenre. Yeah, it's interesting. That whole, I mean, that was going to be the next point is, yeah, okay. So if we go through the plot, Ryan Quanton riles up some local thugs who um, are hassling Earl and shaking him down for money after he uh, beats them up with a wrench, which is a pretty cool scene. Um, I, I will say one of the positives with this movie is that the fight scenes are very, very well done. Okay. There's plenty of squib work and in many scenes, I mean, the violence just gets downright gnarly in uh, in many shots. We'll discuss his final fight with uh, Scott Atkins here in a minute, but um, I will say, in my opinion, while Quentin you know, while he's not the most engaging lead, I think he does a great job in these, uh, in these scenes, but yeah, you mentioned that Robert Lasardo is the, uh, uh, the head, um, thug, I guess we can say. And yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like they're squeezing in another movie or another conflict before they get to the main conflict at hand, which I think the film, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it can be a delicate balance and it can be a kind of dangerous to do, you know, squeezing in this much plot before you get to the main conflict, but they do a pretty good job with it where um, Ryan Quantin uh, goes after Robert Lasardo because Robert Lasardo seeks retaliation. He kills Jake's wife and son. So yeah, Jake just walks into a club, kills Lasardo and his goons out of revenge. And interestingly, I mean, talk about a brisk film. Okay. This all happens in the first 15 minutes and like we keep saying, these moments aren't even the main conflict of the film. It's all a great big setup to get to the main conflict of the movie. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You don't. That's what I mean by being ambitious for this level of 
and low budget indie action. It's got a lot, it accomplishes a lot in, in its running time. So what's interesting is, uh, is the Jake character. He's, he's complacent and completely happy with being in prison. Um, when he's suddenly recruited by, uh, Dermot Mulroney's character, um, who's named Sam Ramsey. Okay. So here's, here's the main, the, the main meat, I guess, of the movie, right? Um, Ramsey runs a covert government unit called Section 8, which enlists soldiers like Jake to help carry out assassinations and uh, uh, what they're, they're supposed to um, pretty much kill anyone who's a threat to the government, I guess, right? It's a, uh, it's a very small unit of only just a few members, um, one of which, one, one of the members of this unit is uh, Justin Furstenfield, who is the lead singer of Blue October. Man, that was some weird casting there. I, I don't know if if he was seeking out acting roles or if Christian Sesma went to a concert and said, I want that guy to be in my movie. But you can tell, man, uh, Justin Furstenfeld, he is loving this role. And I guess he seems to think that uh, dropping an F-bomb every third word is the only way to show that he's a mean badass, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I'm not familiar with that band, so you know. I, I looked it up and saw that he was in a band, but so you knew that. Did you recognize him and and uh, be surprised to see him there? No, no. I, I unfortunately I uh, I dropped my membership to the Blue October fan club about ten <laughs> years ago. Um, <laughs> no, Blue October. They were a huge band. Um, I want to say back in two thousand six to about two thousand eight. That that's my recollection. They they had a few. Uh, uh, pop hit songs that uh, played on the radio ad nauseum. They're still around. They're still touring and still recording. But it's it's interesting that uh, that <laughs> he he was tapped to uh, to to be one of the heavies. But you know what? I think I mean yeah. I, I think he actually does a pretty good job. Yeah, I think so too. He's a classic, uh, just kind of pri- uh, you know, like the prick that is jealous of the new guy is is basically his entire role. Uh, but he, I would have not guessed that he was not a, like a character actor that had done this before. I will say, okay, and I don't know where you stand on this. I will say that Dermot Mulroney is quite good. And I would argue, I think he's actually the best part. I mean, he, he elevates this film considerably. And while he's essentially playing the same character he did in Sleepless with Jamie Foxx, I don't know if you ever saw Sleepless or not, but Mulroney is pretty much playing the, the same character. You believe him as this slippery government operative that you cannot trust. And I would go as far to say, I don't know where you stand on this, but I would go as far and say that I think his inclusion in this film helps it rise above most of the DTV stuff that we're, that, you know, that we see permeate the market these days. I mean, his presence in a film, you can almost, you almost expect it to go theatrical when you see Dermot Mulroney show up. Well, he, they have with his gray beard and hair, he looks a lot like the way Mel Gibson looks now in in movies exactly like this. So I wondered if they couldn't get Mel Gibson and then they got him instead. But but I agree, he's really he seems like he's having a fun time, like also being like the asshole boss guy. And he he uh, yeah, I agree. He makes he makes every, all his scenes more fun. I do have to question his attire in the scene where he springs Quantum from prison. Did you notice this? I mean, he in the rest of the movie, 
Well, no, he's no, always no. in a tuxedo, but in the scene where he's springing quantum from prison, he's wearing a sleeveless hoodie. And it's kind of oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if they, if, if that was his first day on set and they yeah. didn't have his tuxedo ready or not. I don't know. <laughs> well, later he says he, he's wearing a tuxedo. And he says something like, forgive me for my attire. I'm going to a party later or something like that, which is a funny line, but I, I didn't, I didn't understand if there was a purpose for that, if it was just like a weird little, a weird touch. Cause there wasn't, was there any reason for us to care that he was going to something? I don't, no, I no. But I think, I, I think with <laughs> villains, I think with villains, when you dress your villain in a suit, that just adds a level of, uh, yeah. of prestige, you know, to him, you know what I mean? And so it's just interesting when he is first introduced and he comes in this, the, the scene like I said, he's wearing this sleeveless zip-up hoodie, and it's kind of like, well, if you're working for the government, like I, I almost wonder, like I said, if maybe on that day of shooting, they were just like, you know what, Dermot, we don't have your outfit yet. Just, you know, we, we don't have your costume ready just yet. You know what? Just wear that. It's good enough. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I, I do want to mention that, that uh, sorry, I, I, I didn't write down her the actress's name, but I really liked the his sort of right-hand woman, Muller. She was really Yeah, uh, Tra- Tracy Perez is the actor's name. Yeah, she does a great job, doesn't she? She she has a likable presence. I can see her I can see her popping up in a lot more of these films. Yeah, and she doesn't she has a little bit of action, but she I I thought she really uh carried herself for like a real like I, I believed that she was like somebody not to mess with. I I thought she was really good. Well I mean and Okay, that th- right there. That's our. That's the main meat of the film. Okay, and obviously we've seen this story done before many times. Um, I don't know about you, but it actually reminded me slightly of uh, the movie Most Wanted with Keenan Ivory Wayans and John Voight from nineteen ninety seven. Did you see that one? <laughs> I did a long time ago. I don't really remember much. But it's it made a me very very. Oh yeah, is it? Does he? Does he get into trouble and then get recruited? Basically, yeah. Keenan Ivory lands. He's uh, he's in prison, and he's recruited by John Voight to do the same thing. Okay, John Voight runs this very covert um, unit that to kind of handle assassinations. But then they end up making Keenan Ivory lands the uh, the patsy or the setup, if you will. Oh, and so Keenan right. Ivory lands has to go after them. I mean, it's pretty much the Next same thing. I mean, th- there you go. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah, it made me think about like Remo Williams and then even like recently the gray man is kind of like a super expensive version of the same kind of idea that Ryan Ryan Gosling in that one is imprisoned for killing someone and like for revenge and then they recruit him to be an assassin. And, you know, and I, I actually have not seen the gray man yet because I, I, a lot of the reviews were just terrible. Um, how would you say this one stacks up next to the gray man? Um. It's not really f- well. Okay, I know a lot of my friends on Action Twitter and stuff would say that this one was better, and um, but personally, I liked Gray Man a lot, and I don't think it's really fair to compare them because it's a lot of what's cool about that one has to do with them having a lot of money to to spend on on like a a big chase on a light climbing on light rail and shooting at moving cars and stuff like that. So I wouldn't really. You know, there's no way they can have that kind of spectacle in this one, or or make it look as as interesting as that one does. But um, it's too too uh, 
you know, different budget level takes on a similar idea. Well, I think it's, it's very evident that the conceit of this film has much grander designs. Okay. I mean, I think the idea of a special unit that's sanctioned by the government to do the, um, to do the dirty wet work, if you will, I think is a, is a really cool idea. And like we said, we've seen it done before, perhaps with more money like in The Gray Man. But watching this particular film, you can see where the budget constraints are very, very evident. I mean, for one, we already said it, but I mean, the, the team, if you will, is really only three or four members, okay? <laughs> and we only see them take out that one assignment, Okay, in the film. I mean, and all he does is, yeah, all he does is like go out there and very carefully aim. You know, he does that little that walk that you do where you kind of crouch down and you aim carefully, and then he's able to kill everybody that way. <laughs> and then, and then we yeah. know that he's the best. He's the best at what he does because he did that. I thought it well, was kind so... of when, I, I thought it was kind of funny when the the blue October guy was jealous of him and he's called him he 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 says look your golden boy screwed up and he was it was it was unclear why he would be the golden boy because he was just like the new guy who had done one assignment and screwed up (laughs) (laughs) so i didn't understand why he was like the golden boy but 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 to be fair all he did to screw up was not kill two innocent people well and so yeah eventually Jake realizes that Section 8 isn't everything it's cracked up to be, and he needs to get away. So he enlists his mentor and Army training officer, Tom Mason, uh, this is Dolph Lundgren, okay, to help him get the intel so that he can get out of this unit. And so what what ensues here is we get multiple twists and turns are thrown about in this. I mean, and it almost becomes a little too twisty at this point. Um So I'm going to go into spoiler territory, if that's okay. Um, But for one, it is briefly revealed that Dolph's character is actually working for Section 8 and that he helped orchestrate the the murder of Jake's family in order to get uh, to recruit Jake into the unit, which which is a really cool twist. I'll I'll, I'll go with him on that. I think that's a really cool twist. Only the the film does something that's really baffling, okay? As quick as that is revealed, Dolph then pulls Jake aside and tells him that he was only telling uh, Dermot Mulroney that. And so he frees Jake and then teams up with him to take on Section 8, okay? And so you just wonder, like, what was going on in the script that day? Or was this was this Dolph's uh, insistence where he said, you know what, I don't want to be an entire bad guy in this one? I don't know, but it's it's just weird. You get that really cool twist and then it's not even 30 seconds later it's no that's not it you know exactly we're we're changing it again well do you think uh and i know that you're a very big Dolph Lundgren fan do you do you feel like if you had seen this movie and he has such a small part and then also he turns out to be evil and have killed this guy's family um would that feel like disappointing to you do you think or, or would that that would be more exciting? Look, I'd be I'd be on board with it and accepting of it if it meant that we got a really cool fight scene between Dolph and uh, uh, Ryan oh, okay. Quantum. I see that. You know what that's I mean? I, I think that would yeah. have been cool. But it's it's interesting. He frees Jake and then teams up with him to uh, to take on Section Eight. So we get this huge shootout where um, that where it's pretty much Dolph and uh, and Quantum's character are taking on uh, uh, Dermot Mulroney and. Um, that uh, that actress uh, Tracy Perez and uh, Dolph is quickly shot. 
I mean, so it's interesting. It's kind of like, well, <laughs> you could argue and you could say, well, no, Dolph is given an action sequence. And it's like, mm, maybe, but, <laughs> but he gets killed so quickly. And so you almost, okay, I know it's a movie. I understand that, Vern. But you have to sit back and you have to think to yourself, well, if he's such a badass soldier that he was, okay, I'm referring to Dolph's character, how is it he lets himself get shot as quickly as he did? Or maybe that's why when he was in Iraq, he was uh, he was sitting on his ass the whole time. <laughs> I'm still unclear what happened to his leg. Did we see what happened to his leg? He lost a leg. No, absolutely okay. not. <laughs> yeah, he. And then when when he runs, he's he's doing this limp, and I, it's very convincing. So I was like, was something actually wrong with? His leg, and that's why they said that. I wasn't sure. Like maybe it hurt, well, yeah. It hurt the, himself, sure. the stunt double for Dolph is very, very evident in that scene too. Can we just say that? <laughs> well, I do want to say I agree that it was pretty goofy how how they had like a double twist so quickly like that. But um, there's one acting moment that I appreciated in it, which is that when uh, when Dermot Mulroney is revealing that. Dolph is, has been in on it and set him, set him up and everything. He comes in the door and he looks very ashamed of himself. And, um, I just liked that touch that it was like, well, for the brief time when you're believing that he really is evil, there's this idea that he is ashamed. He gives this impression that he's not feeling good about it and he's kind of embarrassed to reveal it to Ryan Quantin instead of the usual, like, haha, I'm evil you know and he uh then when you find out that he really is uh not that he's actually not evil i guess it was still like embarrassing for him just to pretend that he was evil for that brief time i don't know <laughs> but i that was a good that was one of the maybe the only part where i really like appreciated Dolph's uh performance in in this character well i mean and another twist is revealed okay again <laughs> Again, we're completely spoiling the film here, Vern. Um, but uh, Jake is recruited into another. <laughs> this this is an interesting part. So once Section 8 is taken out, Jake is recruited into another government-sanctioned unit. This one is sec called Section 9, which will be fighting the good fight, I guess. You know, it's it's kind of a pointless reveal. Uh, I don't know if you felt that way or not. And it's also interesting how... For being so covert, man, a heck of a lot of people really seem to know about Section 8, didn't they? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I felt like it might have been a setup in case they want to do a sequel uh, and and give give us the title as Section 9 and, and everything so they don't have to say Section 8 too. But um, I, I didn't really pick up on it while watching it, but in thinking about it in retrospect, it's pretty, it's kind of a kind of a gross ending in a way because it's like the whole premise of it was that there was a group called Section 8, but they had to shut it down because they were so corrupt and it was such a bad idea to have these people killing people that they, had, they shut it down. But Dermot Mulroney was evil, so he actually continued it off the books. And our hero stops... He, our heroes, uh, Ryan Quanton and Dolph Lundgren, together stop what they're stop section eight. This phony section eight. Dolph heroically sacrifices his life for this 
And then the reward is they get to start a new agency exactly like it called Section 9. Well, how in the heck? That, that's that shouldn't be a happy ending, but it is. How in the heck did Dolph have the have the intel on this particular unit, though? I mean, did I miss something? But was it established early in those flashback scenes that he worked for the government and had like a had like a role before he before before he went overseas to the Middle East to fight? Like, did I miss something? I didn't understand how. Okay, a he knew as much as he did about Section Eight, and B how he was apparently working with the government to pretend to be Dermot Mulroney's friend in order to take section eight down. I mean, it's, 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 it gets, if you start thinking about it, it gets a little too ridiculous and convoluted. Yeah. I think the only connective material I picked up on is that he, he says he's retiring and then he kind of implies that maybe he won't retire, but then he tells him that he has never heard of a guy named Ramsey. So then when he turns out to know him, he says, okay, maybe I have heard of a guy named Ramsey. (laughs) <laughs> that's right yeah so i mean i guess we're we're to take it that he really didn't retire they recruited him for this job and they probably they may have known about it and told him about who he was and sent him undercover to get him or whatever he, he couldn't well him. let's get to scott atkins in this film yes well yes yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's get to scott atkins in this film okay so all right, fun fact for you, Vern. I don't know, and I don't know if this is going to make some sense to you or not. Um, when I when I uh, sh- shed light on this uh, little detail here, um, but fun fact, okay, the film had actually wrapped filming when it was announced that Scott Atkins was added to the film. Okay, so yeah, the the the, the production had basically wrapped, and suddenly, I guess Scott Atkins um, became available, or he opened up. A couple, uh, a couple shooting days in his schedule, and so if it seems like Scott Atkins' character and his inclusion in this film seems out of place, it's because it is. Okay, Scott Atkins was basically Frankenstein stitched into this film, and his scenes really, really do stand out. I mean, you can literally see the seams, okay, of his inclusion in this movie. Okay, he plays a member of Section Eight who gets hired. Via, uh, through cell phone, of course. Okay. Because again, the movie had wrapped filming. So when he is hired to take out Quantin's character, it's all done over the phone. Um, but, uh, one of his assignments is to eliminate, um, Quantin's character. And so what's really interesting is the movie basically ends. Okay. The movie really does end, but then they bring, um, Scott Atkins back to fight Ryan's, Ryan Quantin's character. And so it's interesting. It's like, okay. Again, is this particular character needed for the film? Absolutely not. But then going along with what I said earlier in our conversation, look, I guess they're doing it right to where Scott Atkins is barely in this movie, but when he is here, he's going to be thrown down. And having said all of that, I will say the final fight between um, Scott Atkins and Ryan Quantin is really, really cool. And I think all of this, to be perfectly honest, falls on the shoulders of uh, Scott Atkins. I mean, he's a guy who... He knows how to fight. He knows how to choreograph um, various fight sequences and everything. So I imagine for this part, they pretty much said, okay, look, Scott, we we realize that we only have you for two, three days, whatever it is. Look, you run the show. You do what you need to do, and we'll go with it. Yeah, I mean, that's undeniably the best part of the movie, and it's very, um, you know, it's a a really good 
example of what we were talking about earlier of, of really taking advantage of, of your actor, even though you don't have them for very long. And not only does he have the fight at the end, but the, but his, his first fight is, is just an incredible scene. <laughs> it really jump. It's just like they call up, they say, get me Locke and they call him and they send him to kill some guy in Reno. And so we suddenly have this, this little tangent in Reno where Scott Adkins is assassinating a sleazy dude in a, in a hotel room. And then he has to escape through the casino and he takes out, I forget, I think I wrote it down. He takes out like five, he beats up, I think five uh, casino security guys. And then he starts shooting into the casino after he's almost made it out the door. And then he just executes a, a security guard and just drives off in a Ferrari or something, some kind of fancy car. Uh, so it's a pretty, and you know, there's, he's doing flying kicks and, he randomly knocks over some guy, that, some poor casino employee. Uh, it's really, it's a great, um, you know, he's got this very simple character and he makes him into this Terminator guy and, and like makes him totally interesting in a very, in a very uh, fun two-dimensional sort of way. Well, before, b- before I get your, uh, your final recommend on this film, I, I am curious. Okay. I mean, because, Look, the, the film is actually better than I think uh, I anticipated it being. But I wanted to get your your opinion and your take on the state of these the state of these films today. Okay, um, like I said earlier, I, I think the whole bait and switch of these films. Okay, where you're sold on the aging action star only to realize that okay, this particular actor really isn't going to be in the film and is taking on more a supporting role. Look, let's face it, this is the norm these days. Okay, and I think everyone who is now on to the MO of how producers are making and financing these things, we're almost oddly accepting of it now. Okay, and while we'd love to see Dolph and Mickey Rourke in something on the level of a uh, of, of a Creed two or a Skin Trade, I think these are simply the types of roles that uh, that Dolph is latching onto, and we can either be on board with it or we can simply no longer watch them. And so we're now at a really, really interesting turn in the careers of not just Dolph Lundgren, but a lot of these action stars from the, uh, from the nineties. Okay. I mean, you know, Wesley Snipes, I think if Wesley Snipes really wanted to keep working, okay. These are the types of films that we'd be seeing him in. Um, same thing with Jean-Claude Van Damme. I think it's one of the big reasons why we don't see too much as Jean-Claude Van Damme anymore is because he looks at these, uh, these type of productions as being a little bit beneath him. And so, I'm curious, what do you think? Okay, is it better to have some Dolph Lundgren or no Dolph Lundgren at all? <laughs> That's an unanswerable question, I think. I don't know. It's. Um, I wonder if the whole Bruce Willis situation has kind of blown the lid off of it in a way where everyone kind of knew what was going on, but it just became very much out in the open and discussed. Uh, because of his unfortunate health situation and the way that he possibly was being taken advantage of. And I don't know, I, I feel like in a way, once it becomes more out in the open that that's the formula, if if people start turning against it, then it'll be harder to get away with doing it. But on the other hand, I don't see them putting more money and more longer schedules into into movies, into movies like this. And it all goes back to my, you know, I always harp on this, but like when we had video stores, 
making a movie like this, you could get a certain budget because you knew you would sell however many copies to Blockbuster in Hollywood. But now you don't know that you're going to get that much money unless Netflix funds it or something. So um, they just make the budget smaller and smaller, and it kind of forces them into this situation. Well, what do you think? Okay, I mean, I feel like when you when we discuss these films, we almost have to kind of grade them on a curve, if you will, or maybe kind of you know grade them with like a little bit of a caveat. But I'm curious. Okay, look, you've seen a ton of these types of movies, as have I. But what do you think? Does this particular film get a uh, get a recommend from you? Not just as a uh, as action film in general, but as a Dolph Lundgren movie. Uh, what what do you think? Where do you stand? I think as a Dolph Lundgren movie, no, uh, because I think just like uh, I, you know, we did Female Fight Squad before, and I like that movie a lot more than I like this one. But in both cases, it's like it's cool to see Dolph there, but it's not really about Dolph, and I like the other parts of it enough that it that it doesn't really offend me that he's just kind of there for a little bit. Um, but if you're going to, if you just want to see Dolph Lundgren, then you're definitely going to be disappointed with this one. So um, I would say only go if you're someone like the, me that likes to watch, you know, every, not every, but, you know, likes a, a, a heavy diet of, of action movies, including low budget ones. Well, thank you. You know, I mean, as far as my recommend goes, I mean, look, we, we discussed the highs and the lows of this film, and I really didn't think there were any lows on this particular film. I mean, I've seen much, much worse, as have you, I imagine, right? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think, you know, again, if we're going to look at this at grading it on a curve or, you know, having some caveats thrown in, I think this is actually pretty competent and decent considering everything else we have in the market these days. I think the action scenes all have some teeth to them. Um, sadly, which is interesting, really despite Dolph really not being in any of them, I think the, the rest of the, uh, of the action sequences and fight scenes are really, uh, really well done. Um, I think Ryan Quantin and Dermot Moroni's performances really add a, uh, um, a different texture to what would be a fairly generic and routine action vehicle. And, Here's the way I look at these types of films these days, Mern. Okay. On, on one of the previous episodes, we, uh, excuse me, we, we did an analogy where we looked at the film War Pigs and we kind of called War Pigs the, the Honda Civic of action movies, if you will. You know what I mean? It's, it's basic, but it's reliable. And here's the way I look at these films these days. I mean, clearly, okay, if you look at what's going theatrical, we still have the John Wick franchise, the Fast and the Furious franchise. Okay. We have those in theaters that are giving us our, um, are are Lamborghinis? Those are the Lamborghinis. There you those go. Those are the Lamborghinis. <laughs> the, 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 those are giving us the uh, our action fix today, but we really don't have much else. And so, if if you're an action junkie like you and I are, um, we have to look to the uh, the world of uh, direct to video to kind of get our fix. And so, I look at these films today as essentially being the equivalent of uh, a frozen pizza. Okay, if by some freak accident, Vern, okay, some absolute freak accident, okay, all, all restaurants and franchises quit serving pizza, and all we had to satiate our pizza was frozen pizza, then I think we, we kind of have to take what we can get, okay? And with regard to Section 8, I think it's definitely one of the better of the low-budget uh, name actors filmed uh, for only three three days type of films. I mean, if you look at this compared to Acceleration, which came out a few years ago, um, that one looked like it was filmed on cardboard sets. And so I think this is 
relatively decent and competently made considering the market. I, I would say it's it's the Red Baron of frozen pizza. Okay. Red Baron is amazing frozen pizza. Okay. And so, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the best things I can say about it. And I know it sounds kind of like a backwards compliment and I don't mean it that way, but that's, that's kind of how I look at these films these days. Do you think it has the rising crest or is it just regular? <laughs> oh, good question. Good question. Um, and again, I mean, Vern, I mean, let's face it, rising crust, you can get a rising crust frozen pizza. <laughs> In grocery stores. Remember when Rising Crust used to be a thing that you could only order in various restaurants and things like that? So, I mean, I would say, I would say, yeah, this yeah. is probably a uh, on, on the level of a Rising Crust. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think so. I agree. I like the comparison. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Red Baron. I think Red Baron is great. Tony's are great. DiGiorno. Those are great as well. So, there you go. <laughs> and, I mean, if you look at a guy like Dolph, I mean, again... I know we compared him to Van Damme earlier, and, and we said how Van Damme is kind of uh, pretty much in this state of retirement. But Dolph, man, he is still working, okay? And so if you look at his slate of films, he has some interesting ones coming out. He um, directed and starred in one called uh, Wanted Man, where he co-stars with uh, Kelsey Grammer. And then he has another one that's currently – yeah, I know. <laughs> he has another one that's currently in post. Um, I want to say it's called Hellfire, okay, with uh, – uh, Harvey Keitel and Stephen Lang. So it's interesting. It's like, okay, look, obviously I don't want there not to be any Dolph Lundgren at all, but it's kind of like, look, if, I mean, if these are the types of films that we're getting, you know, at least he's starring with some kind of cool names. Yeah. This is, uh, this is on another level, but like, I really hope he straightens things out with Stallone because I, I was so excited when they said there was going to be a Ivan Drago movie. Because that's been my dream since before Creed. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I, I could see that happening, or like a um, an Ivan Drago series or something like that. It's interesting. I'll get your take on that real quick since you brought that up. I mean, do you think that Dolph would be as bold as? I mean, I can go both ways on it, but do you think he would do a Drago movie without? Stallone's approval. I know Stallone wants to have the rights to those characters, but unfortunately he does not. But I would hate to think that Dolph would turn down a massive payday and a huge opportunity for exposure because of his buddy with, uh, because of the fact that he's buddies with Stallone. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm torn on that because I, on one hand, I think it would be wrong. I kind of think it would be wrong for Dolph to do it if Stallone doesn't approve of it. But on the other hand, I kind of think it's wrong for Stallone to stop Dolph from having this opportunity because it's obviously so such a great opportunity, you know, to continue this character that would have, wouldn't have been the same if it wasn't yeah. him. Yeah, well, um, well, Vern, hey, look, I, I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for uh, for coming back to uh, uh, chat this one with me. This was a lot of fun. Um, I, we didn't get to talk a heck of a lot about your your website or any of your books, so I'll I'll uh, give you the uh, you have control of the show. You have uh, the table at this moment to uh, to discuss it. But what's new with you? What's going on with uh, with your writings? And uh, we can find them all at uh, outlawvern.com. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's outlawvern.com. Um, I also have a Patreon that has some exclusive stuff on it. Uh, but I, uh, well, I just, uh, you know, we're re recording at the beginning of October, but I still, I just finished my summer of 1992 retrospective that I was doing all summer. And then I got 
COVID and some stuff happened, so I got behind <laughs> schedule. But I, I just finished that, and now I'm going into. I always do all horror movies in October, so I'm I'm excited to get going on that. Excellent, excellent. Any more intel that you can give us on uh, on your your next upcoming book? I know you kind of teased and hinted at it uh, when we were discussing Female Fight Squad, but uh, can can you give us any more? <laughs> no, I still I haven't really made much progress on that, but I'm I'm uh, I've got a I forget what I said last time, but I've got an action star book that I want to do, and then I have another horror novel idea. I want a horror action thing that I want to do that's kind of connected to where I'm on a hook, which is my last book. Well, maybe when we're offline, I'll, I'll guess, and maybe you can uh, give me <laughs> when we're not recording. Okay. But, okay. Uh, well, Vern, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for agreeing to come back. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, again, the, 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 the window's open for you, so I'd love to uh, to have you open. Oh, anytime, I'd love to. Thank you very much. It's fun. Right on. I enjoy it. Well, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. Mm -hmm.